Good evening. This is a glorious day. This is a glorious time. The first Wednesday worship, we get to gather again to hear the word of God and to rejoice in it. As Pastor Ed said, we're in the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. Let me say a little bit about prophets in general. The function of prophets is that they were the voice boxes of God calling Israel to covenant faithfulness. Sometimes when we think about prophecy or prophets, we think about telling of the future. That's kind of the first thing that we think about with relation to prophecy. And while the prophets, by the Spirit of God, did say things and express things that no man could have known that did happen, their primary function was not just to say what will happen later on. Their primary function was to speak to the people of God and to warn them and to remind them of the word of God that they might walk in faithfulness. And because the people of God were sinful and disobedient in many ways, kind of two major themes that you see in the prophets is destruction and redemption. So if you want to hear a prophecy, that's probably one of the things you're going to hear, destruction and redemption. And it's the same as today, except today we don't have prophets like they had in the Old Testament. Why? Because we have the word of God, which speaks to us. What the prophets did was they spoke of future destruction. The word of God tells us in Revelation 21 that the devil and all those who follow him will be thrown into the lake of fire along with death and Hades. That's a prophecy. And we also tells of the future redemption. The prophets of God spoke that word to God's people back in the day, and it speaks it to us. Our brother first in chapter, first Peter chapter one says that we ought to set our hopes on the grace that is going to be given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of future redemption. This is the work of prophecy, which was done by men of old and which is done now through the word of God. And so what we have in the Minor Prophets is 12 different voices from different periods of Israel's history essentially giving God's people the same message. God hates wickedness. If you're in wickedness, there will be destruction. If you repent and turn, there will be redemption and blessing. God is merciful. God is gracious. God punishes the wicked. There's kind of three outliers in that group, Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah, who aren't speaking directly to Israel, but Jonah speaks to Nineveh, but the message is that God has mercy on those who repent at his word, just happens to be speaking it to the Assyrians, the enemies of Israel. Nahum also goes to speak to Nineveh later on, saying that God will destroy those who destroyed his people and that God will triumph over evil nations, and Obadiah, who speaks to Edom, who was a hater of God's people, who kind of joined in while Babylon came and destroyed Israel, and they took advantage of Israel. God will destroy those who hate his people. But most spoke directly to the Jewish people. Now I say Jewish people to encompass the whole, but now we need to begin to divide them into parts, because there's a distinction between what's known as Judah which is the southern kingdom, which was Jerusalem and kind of everything in that southern area. And then you had the northern kingdom, which is referred to in the prophets generally as Israel. So when you hear Israel, you might think of all the Jews. But as you're reading the prophets, you got to pay attention a little more closely to see what Israel is he talking about. Very frequently in the prophets, it's talking about that northern kingdom also referred to as Samaria, which was the capital of that kingdom, or Ephraim, which was a large section, one of the tribes that was in that northern kingdom that kind of stood for the whole. And all the prophetic books, all 12, were written after the division of the kingdom that occurred under Solomon's son Rehoboam. And what we see after that division, if you read through the Old Testament in its chronological order, is that the kingdom of Israel just slowly starts to decline until finally the exile when they are destroyed and carried away. 
They have some high points, but they're, they're always kind of dying because of sin, because of disobedience. And the only antidote, as all the prophets will say, is repentance, faith in the Lord and God's gracious mercy. And so the overall message of the minor prophets is pointing the rebellious people of all Israel back to this reality. And as we study the minor prophets this summer, the, the greatest ideal is that this would continually point us back to this reality. And because we know that the point of the Bible is Jesus, we will see that all of the grace and mercy prophesied by all of the prophets find their source and their final fulfillment in the person and the work of the God-man Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, why, why study all of these prophets if they're all saying kind of the same thing, pointing in the same direction? Well, I'll give you two reasons why we should know them all. First is for historical clarity. We have the word of God, and as we understand each book on its own, we can see why God says certain things in certain times how he speaks into different situations, being the same God with the same goals all of the time. We can see and trace how God has been practically working to shepherd his people towards obedience and salvation over the course of history. And that bleeds into the second reason why we study the minor prophets, which is a theological clarity. It's like, it's like a diamond. When light hits a diamond, the light refracts. And you see out of this one beam of white light, these colors come out. And as you turn that diamond and you look at it from different angles, you get to see different aspects of that one light. Studying the books of the prophets is similar like that. It's the same God speaking through different men at different times to the same people. But as you go, Hosea, we see a little aspect of God's glory. Joel, we see a different aspect. As you go through all the prophets, the glory of God is revealed from various angles. And you just want to observe all of those so that you can have a fuller, more glorious, more heart-stirring appreciation for what God does and who God is. So my assignment today is to give you a glimpse of the glory of God through the book of Hosea. All right, now, Pastor Ed has been preaching through Hebrews. Hebrews has 13 chapters, and he'll finish up very shortly, so he'll have spent about two years in this 13-chapter book. Hosea has 14 chapters, so buckle up. We won't be able to plumb all of the riches and mine all of the verses and look at all of the imagery or address all of the difficulties at this night. But but what this recalls to me is, is a show called Reading Rainbow. Raise your hand if you remember Reading Rainbow. Right, basically what... what LeVar Burton would do, and his little kid friends, they'd open up a book to you, they'd share with you a little bit about it, and at the end, he'd always say, but you don't have to take my word for it, with the expectation that you would go take up that book and go see what's in it for yourself. That's what we want with these prophet studies. You would get a taste, you would maybe get a little roadmap, and that you would then go home and read these things and delight in them and enjoy them and search out the deeper questions that are there. Come ask us and come talk about them. The prophets are great books which reveal the glory of God. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into Hosea himself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for delivering it to us through so many different voices in so many different contexts that we can see you and really, really enjoy you and know you. And this knowledge comes by your spirit alone. So we thank you that our eyes 
are open and our ears can hear. Lord, if there are those who are hardened to your word tonight, those who have not yet heard or seen or tasted your glory, Lord, would this be the night that you would show them how wonderful you are, how just you are, how filled with wrath against sin you are, but how prepared you are to justify those who have a humble heart and turn to you in repentance. Lord, you are sovereign and awesome. Help me to declare that word. Help us all to hear it and to love it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we approach Hosea, first we'll talk about context, and then we'll talk about content. We'll talk about what's happening around the book of Hosea in that time. So if you would, grab your Bible, open up to the book of Hosea, and just keep it open. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible out of the pew. We're going to be moving through it. I want you to be able to see in the book what's happening. Verse 1 sets up our context for us. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beri, in the day of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So the star is the Lord. His word comes, and it comes to a man called Hosea. This is the author of these prophecies. The name Hosea comes from the Hebrew root word that means salvation. It's essentially a same form of the name Joshua, similar form to the name Jesus. All of these are built on the Hebrew word for salvation. Hosea had his dad. His name was Beri. That's what we know. Now, this book is likely a compilation of Hosea's written prophecies over the course of some time. There was probably an editor, perhaps a priest, who gathered all these things together and collected them into one book. Now, the time that we're in, we're in the time of the divided kingdom. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. At this time in history, the southern kingdom spiritually is doing pretty well. Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah are all commended as kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Only Ahaz, in the middle there, did not do that which is pleasing to the Lord. For all of them, if you look into the books of Kings, we'll see that they said they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the high places were not removed. So there's still an undercurrent of idolatry even in the southern kingdom, but basically speaking, they're holding to Yahweh. Now this is in contrast to the northern kingdom. In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Interestingly, the northern kingdom starts with a king named Jeroboam. Here's Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And in 1 Kings 11 and 12, we hear his story, how God is angry at Israel. He's going to tear the kingdom apart. He's going to give 10 of these tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes under the control of Jeroboam. And he's going to leave two under the control of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And this Jeroboam, when he gets control of these 10 tribes, is worried that his group of people are going to defect to Judah because they have the temple and they have the worship of Yahweh. So what he decides to do is to create these two massive golden calves so that his people can worship them as if they're worshiping Yahweh and they don't have to go to the temple. And rather than utilized the priesthood that God said the people should use in his law. He, he appointed his own priests. He set up his own religion. And so the northern kingdom of Israel was birthed in deep idolatry, and that stain never left them. So now we have moved through their history about 200 years to another king named Jeroboam. 
He's referred to sometimes as Jeroboam II. He's the son of Joash, and he reigned for 41 years in the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam's reign, this second Jeroboam, was the golden age of the northern kingdom. This is when they were the most prosperous. This is when they were the most successful militarily. Jeroboam was going out and defeating the enemies of Israel and gaining their property, their land back for them. It was a great time politically and in terms of national power, but in terms of theology, in terms of love for Yahweh, they were dead. And so what happens after Jeroboam, the Lord begins to bring judgment upon them, and the kings that follow him have relatively short reigns, and all of this leads up to the final overthrow of Samaria by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. under King Hosea. So leading up to this time in the northern kingdom, through the prophets, God has given no shortage of warnings to the northern kingdom that they should change their ways and they should repent. According to the law, the final consequence of idolatry and forgetting their God would be removal from the land. Hear the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 58 to 63. It says, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in this book of the law the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. This is at the very beginning of their coming into the land. They are warned. And the warnings come again and again and again. Warning, warning, warning. Be true to the covenant. Obey the Lord your God. If you do not obey the Lord your God, you will be destroyed. He will destroy you. This is the message of Hosea, essentially. And so this is how we're going to work through the book of Hosea. First, we're going to talk about the parable of the prostitute. Then we're going to look at a parade of proof or an avalanche of accusation. Then we're going to look at prophesied punishment. And then precious promises. So the parable of the prostitute is probably the most well-known aspect of Hosea. When you say to the average person, book of Hosea, ah, he marries a prostitute. Right? God commands his prophet to marry an unfaithful woman. Look with me at verse 2 in Hosea chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And one of the first disputes or controversies about this book is whether or not this marriage to the wife of whoredom is a literal one or whether it is a symbolic one, like an allegory or a vision. Those who lean to the symbolic side would first kind of balk at just the strangeness of the command. Why would God tell a prophet, a holy man, to marry a promiscuous, unfaithful woman? Just doesn't jibe with their kind of thought process about how God works. And also, another thing that they would point to is the timing in between the children that we'll get to. The prophecy goes child after child after child, and they think it would kind of be weird if this was an actual happening for these prophecies to be spread out 
over the course of years. But then there are those who hold to the literal sense, like this is an actual thing that God told Hosea to do, and he actually did it. He didn't just see it in a vision. And the argument for that lies in the very plainness of the words. It says, God says to Hosea, take a wife of whoredom and the given name. It gives the name of a specific woman, Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. I lean towards the literal interpretation. And I think the reason for the command explains the very unusual command that God gives. It is unusual for God to say to a holy man, take an unholy wife. Priests were forbidden to marry unchaste women. Prophets were not. The law says nothing about that. But how I understand this is that it's a sign act. Sign acts in the scriptures are things that God commands his prophets to do that illustrate through their lives and through their actions things that God is trying to communicate. And often they're very unusual. The prophet Isaiah was commanded to walk around naked and barefoot for three years to prophesy to Egypt and Cush that they would be enslaved and be carried around naked and barefoot. So this picture of the prophet doing so paints to the people that God is communicating a picture of what he's trying to say to them. It makes it vivid. It makes it real. The prophet Ezekiel was commanded by God to lay bound in cords and to cook his dinner over cow's dung in order to signify the siege of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people to eat their food unclean among the nations. It's a picture that God is painting through the action of his prophets to get a message across. Ezekiel does a number of these. He's often thought to be kind of the crazy prophet. And Jeremiah also. So if you think of the parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament, he paints these verbal pictures for people to explain to them the things of the kingdom of God. And these sign acts by the prophets are visual aids to drive home the prophet's preaching. And the warning is that you don't remember the act and forget the message. You might remember that Hosea made, married a prostitute, but why? Well, the Lord tells us why. It's for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He's already making a comparison. Prophet, take an unfaithful woman. Why? Because Israel, who is betrothed to me, who, whose husband I am supposed to be, is unfaithful. And then they have three children that are part of this picture, and their names carry a meaning. So in verse 3 and 4, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel." In 2 Kings 10, we read of the story of Jehu, who was anointed as king, who went in and destroyed the house of King Ahab, who was an evil king in the northern kingdom. He murdered all of his sons. He killed the king of Judah, killed the king of Israel, killed their family members. There was just this massive slaughter in Jezreel. Jehu was used by God to punish the idolaters, but Jehu's bloodthirstiness is also going to be visited back on his house. The Lord said to Jehu, I will let your seed remain on the throne till the fourth generation, and then it's over. And here we are. The punishment is now coming on the house of Jehu, so that would make Jeroboam like his great-great-grandson Maybe I'm missing or adding a great somewhere, but it's down the line, and that bloodshed is now coming. In verses 6 and 7, she conceived again and bore him a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And in verse 8, 
When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Whether this marriage and these children are symbolic or not, the message remains the same. The word of the Lord says, Israel is unfaithful and Yahweh is disowning them. Skip to chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Command comes to the prophet again. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other God and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So the controversy continues. Maybe this is another figurative vision that the prophet is seeing. Or Gomer left after they got married, and now Hosea is commanded to go and restore this woman. Or Gomer's dead, and this is a new woman that he's told to marry. Or this is a retelling of the chapter one story, just kind of with different details. Symbolic or not, whether this is Gomer, whether this is another woman, whether it's completely symbolic, what you're meant to see is in verse 1. The Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. The act that the prophet is commanded to do is to display the love that God has for this unfaithful people and to highlight the coming restoration. In verses 3 through 5, what Hosea says to this unfaithful woman, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So the word of the Lord says here, though Israel has been unfaithful in spite of his love for them, after a time of discipline and deprivation, they will repent and they will return to him. If you know our brother Vinny Nizzo, brother Vinny Nizzo likes sunsets. And very often he will send a poem and he'll send a picture of a glorious sunset along with it. And those pictures are so good that when you look at them, it almost looks real. You can see the glory of God that he's captured in this photograph. But if you were to be present at that same sunset and see it in all of its real majestic glory, it would make the picture kind of not so big, not so great. You would understand more the true glory of that sunrise. That's kind of how Hosea works. Hosea 1 through 3 is the picture. This parable or this act and the things that are communicated in verses 1 through 3 are expanded in verses 4 through 12. So you can read the first three chapters and get the general idea and pass up the book of Hosea. I understand the message. I see what it says. But when you go into the rest of the chapters, it unfolds all of these things to much greater detail that you can stand back and say, oh, wow, this is glorious. And so the full, the rest of Hosea gives us the full context of the parable, and that expands its glory. The same is true in all of your Bible study, right? Every book of the Bible is a little snapshot. But you got to take in the whole thing as much as you can to really see 
the majestic glory that is in any one part, when you have a verse that you enjoy that really touches you, when you get the context around it and you see it, that unfolds the glory that much more. And so what I'm going to try to do in the rest of this time is just kind of walk you through some of the unfolding of these ideas that we get in verses 2 to 3. So I'm going to put these two together because they come together constantly in the message, the parade of proof and the prophesied punishment, what God is angry about and what God is going to do about it. It has its root in the parable. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, Reads, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. This gives us the picture of the adultery that Israel is being charged with and the punishment that God is going to bring upon her for the worship of other gods. In 4 to 5, it says, Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She thinks that all of the blessings that she has coming to her are coming to her through these false gods that she worships. And God says in verse 8, She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and the gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Israel is being punished for attributing the blessings of the Lord to these false gods. What you will see in the book of Hosea is lots of legal language. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, O children of Israel, the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That term controversy could also be translated as a case. He has a case against them. He's got evidence stacked up. Elsewhere in the book, you will see the words indictment and guilt. Israel is standing before the judge, and they are guilty. When you stand before a judge after a case, and the jury walks back in, and they hand the sentence to the judge, the judge opens it up. He tells you what the count is, of which you've been found guilty, and then he tells you what the sentence is that is being pronounced. And this is what happens over and over through Hosea. First count is in chapter 4, the indictment of the leaders. He comes to the heads first, just like he came to Adam first in the garden. He accuses the prophets and the priests, and he says, you have stumbled and you have rejected knowledge, and my people perish for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected it, I reject you from being a priest to me. That's the charge. Those who are in charge, those who are supposed to be leading people in the proper worship, have gone astray. And this has caused the people to go astray. And the sentence comes in verse 9 and 10. It shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. There will be no satisfaction for them as they pursue idolatry. This is their punishment. Second count is seeking help from foreign kings. In chapter 7, verse 11, Ephraim, that's just a shorthand for Israel, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Israel was a very weak nation in the midst of two very powerful nations, Egypt and Assyria, and there was always conflict going through that area because of a power struggle for this very fertile and wonderful land. Now, what 
the Israelites were supposed to do was to trust God. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Psalm 146, verse 3, put not your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Do not rely on military power to maintain this land. I am your God. But they did not hold to that. They did not trust God. In chapter 8, 9, and 10, it says, They have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. And though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and the priests, princes shall soon writhe because of the tributes. So what Israel would do is they would bring tribute, depending on the time frame, either to Egypt and say, hey, Egypt, Assyria is really on our backs. Would you please give us some horses and some chariots and some military power so we can fight against them? And we will serve you and obey you and be loyal to you. And then when that wasn't working out, they might run to Assyria and say, okay, Assyria, Egypt's getting kind of powerful. We're going to give you our gold and our silver, and we're going to give obedience to you, and we're going to serve you. When they should be giving their obedience and their service and their trust to the Lord God. And here's the sentence in verses 12 to 13. So as they go like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria, the Lord says, as they go, I will spread over them my net and I will bring them down like birds of the heavens, and I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And this going to the powers of the nations to try and buy security when the Lord is your God, is a way that is leading to Israel's destruction. Again, it's recounted, they trust in man. In 8.4, it said, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. This refers back to the institution of King Saul, when Samuel was priest over them, and he would judge them and teach them the law of God. And the people said, come, give us a king, like the other nations have kings. And Samuel is despondent because the Lord is their king. And the Lord says to Samuel, don't worry, Samuel. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. I'm going to tell them how bad this king is going to be for them. But if they want a king, I will give them a king. And so they chose to have kings and they chose idolatry. With silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And here's the sentence in 8, 6 to 8. For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces, recalls Genesis. When God first brings this weak people out of bondage and slavery to bring them into a land of their own, and he gives them a law from on high on the mountain, and while their prophet is on the mountain getting the law for these people, what do they build? A big old golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain and he's filled with rage. And what does he do? He takes the calf and he destroys it and he grinds it up into powder and makes the people drink it. Now, hundreds of years later, here we are again with another massive golden calf built by the people of God. And God says, I myself am going to break it to pieces. Verse 5 says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria, and my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? The heart of God has seen the disobedience of his people over an extended course of time, which proves that the Lord is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But in verse 9-9, there's an accusation of sexual immorality and wickedness. They have corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. If you remember the story in Judges 19, 
there's a Levite and his concubine who show up in Gibeah to stay at a man's house, and the people of Gibeah come out, and they want to have their way with the man. And they say, oh, no, don't do that. Here, I'll give you my concubine and my daughter. And the concubine is pushed out, and she's abused, and she's killed. And then the Levite takes her, and he cuts her up, and he mails her out across the kingdom. It says, nothing like this, no wickedness like this has ever been seen in Israel. And here we go. The Lord is saying, where you're at right now, you are immoral and corrupt, just as you were as Gibeah. You have reached the low of the lows. And here's the sentence. The prophet says, give them, O Lord, 9.14, what will you give Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal, and there I begin to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Verse 17, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. Finally, in chapter 13, the Lord gives another indictment. And then he says this in 13, 4 through 8. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion. As a wild beast, I would rip them open. Now this language that the prophet uses is less judicial and more animalistic. It's, it's speaking of the ferocity of God's wrath against sin and idolatry. And this is how people think of the Old Testament God. That's that's who he is. He's just this crazy animal God who just wants to destroy people. But they've missed the bigger picture. Within all of these threats and judgments and sentences pronounced for wickedness, there are gracious calls to repentance and precious promises given to those who will heed the words of this prophecy. Precious promises. They have their roots, again, in the parable in chapters 1 through 3. So in verse 10 of chapter 1, right after he names the children, not my people, no mercy, Jezreel, The word of God then says, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. This recalls the promise to Abraham. All of God's faithfulness, all of God's patience hinges not on any characteristic within his people, but what God himself has said. He said to Abraham, I will give you offspring as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Israel is descended from Abraham. He must preserve that line in order to fulfill this promise, and he says he will fulfill this promise. Galatians 3.29 tells us if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. We are part of a numerous gathering of offspring greater than the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. The promise will be fulfilled. In 2.1 it says, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. This comes by the promise of God. 
And Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, where he says that the people of God are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This promise is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It calls to repentance in 2.2. It says, plead with your mother, plead, beg her to return and to put away her idolatry. And the promise comes in 2.14. The Lord himself says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. This unfaithful Israel, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. All right, this sounds like the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. It sounds like the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will make you careful to obey all of my commands. I will put my spirit within you. And we know this new covenant is instituted in the blood of Jesus Christ. The precious promises of God undergird all of this prophecy. And because of Christ's blood, all these calls to repentance can be made in earnest because God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to the heart of God in chapter 11, verse 7. He says, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? Those two cities were cities that were in the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord rained fire and hailstones on them to destroy them for their immorality. And the Lord is looking at his people and saying, how, how could I do that to you, to my people? If my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This leaves open for us the promise of a remnant and a restoration a repentance, a resettling by grace. In chapter 14, verse 1 to 4, the call to repentance. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. So putting it all together, the last verse, 14.9 I believe this is written by the editor of the book who has compiled these prophecies. And he says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. I think what he's trying to say to us as readers is that God has not changed. See God's heart in the prophecies of Isaiah. See his wrath against sin and unfaithfulness. But see also his tender mercy, 
his love for his people, and his absolute willingness to deliver and forgive and restore the repentance and walk in the way of the Lord. And our sins have made a separation between us and our God. All have sinned, and there is none righteous. Apart from God, we are all children of wrath, just like the children of Israel, just like the calf worshipers, just like those doing injustice in Israel, just like those seeking their own way and not seeking the way of the Lord. We too deserve to be ripped apart, to be torn by the wrath of the Lord. But our God is gracious. Our God is merciful, and he hears and responds to the voice of repentance. Hear it in chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. The voice of repentance speaks this. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers and the spring rains that water the earth. God's faithfulness is great. He has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy On all, as it says in Romans 11. But the Lord can make the spiritually dead alive, alive together with Christ, will raise us up and seat us in the heavenly places despite our sin. If we repent and if we know him, for this is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So let us not be carried away by the error of lawless people. Let us not fall into the errors of Israel that chased after other gods for their own desires. But let us grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and come to him with humble and contrite hearts and receive his promises of restoration. Father, thank you for your heart of love towards us. We are disobedient people by nature, but we revel today in the greatness of your salvation, in the wonders of your mercy, in your goodness. Lord, cleanse us from all our uncleanness, carry us in your grace, cause us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you, and bring salvation to the undeserving, to show your glory and your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.